Most of us, as a chapter in life ends, we look forward to the new beginning. Yesterday, I went to my son's graduation, as probably many of you did at Brentwood High School or other high schools in the area this week, and it's exciting to watch all that energy as they never again have to go back to high school. It's a new chapter, a new page, a new experience for them. And truly, every semester is for a student, whether you're just getting into summer or going back to college or taking a break or whatever it is, each chapter gives opportunity for change. After high school, I did not want to go to college. I had worked uh, two part-time jobs my last three years of high school. I worked as a mechanic and in a photo lab, and I later would work at a backpacking store, and I was a pretty busy individual, and I enjoyed work more than school. I liked money more than school. So uh, I went to work full-time for the railroad and worked as a diesel mechanic and electrical uh, hydraulic uh, equipment and all sorts of things and uh, got my chops uh, with bad knuckles and, and pushing wrenches. And during that year between high school and college, some friends encouraged me to, to go to college. And after a year of the railroad, I thought, you know, college was looking pretty good about right now. So I decided to apply and was accepted at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. So I packed all my worldly possessions in my truck and drove to Nacogdoches. Had to go to a two-day orientation, and I'll never forget it. They had several during the, the, the year, but this was the last one before school started. And Clyde Iglinski, never will forget that name, was telling us about what to expect. A room about this size, completely full of students. None of us wanted to be there in orientation, but you had to go. And he began to talk about what to expect, and you're no longer in mommy and daddy's care, and you're on your own. You have to be responsible and not just party 24-7 and, and be a grown-up and so forth and so on. And he had us do a simple exercise, starting with ourselves at number one, and then counting off two, three, four. And then he said, after we did that, one of you will not be here by the end of this first semester. He could have been a stand-up comedian at that point because he went on to talk about going home to mommy and missing your friends and you were the cheerleader and now you're a nobody and you were the jock and now you're a nobody and you were the most popular person on campus and no one even knows your name and he just had great fun at our expense but leveling the ground saying this is a new chapter and he was orienting us to a new season of life I'll never forget what he said. And if I would distill it to a statement today, it'd be simply this. Learn to be wise, don't live as a fool. Learn to be wise, don't live as a fool. Because if you're going to be on your own, you have to make some decisions and be responsible. It's not just about being away from mom and dad. It's about learning to be wise because no one's going to tell you what to do. No one's going to make you get up in the morning and go to class. No one's going to force you to turn in your homework anymore. You're on your own Learn to be wise and don't be a fool. We are thinking about wisdom this summer. And what I would like to do is to take you to the book of wisdom, Proverbs, and to give you a very brief orientation about what wisdom is, what it isn't, how we get it, and how the Scripture describes wisdom to us. The Proverbs are a book of witticisms. They're a book of satire, a book of riddle, a book of enigmatic expressions that Solomon truly the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture, uh, was able to, with precision and goat words like driven nails, he implanted words so that people would remember them. 
And so the structure of the wisdom literature is such that we will remember these little phrases and twists and turns and riddles, and they would stick with us. And if you open to Proverbs chapter 1, I'm going to read the first seven verses to just orient you to the book a little bit, and then we want to think about what wisdom is and isn't. So would you stand, please, as I read the first seven verses of Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You may be seated. Those seven verses are in miniature an outline of the entire book of Proverbs of the 31 chapters. Now, when I read it, you may or may not have heard the cadence of the word to, the little word to. And it's called an infinitive construct, technically, but it's like a little flag in the margin when you read it. To know wisdom, to discern the sayings, to receive instruction, to give prudence, to understand. And this is the point of his writing about wisdom so that you and I will get it. And the benefits of wisdom are to receive it, to discern, to learn, to understand prudence when we're naive and don't know, to be prudential in the way we make decisions in front of us and to understand these proverbs that are simple at one level but run very deep at others the goal is the fear of the lord it's the beginning of these things and the fear here is that holy awesomeness of god that we have a reverence toward and my bible in the margin it's the word is worship there because if you understand the fear of the Lord and wisdom, you're worshiping God the way he intends us as worshipers. Now, wisdom is uh, a lot of things. And we've talked here many times about fields of meaning. And I use this silly illustration of a peanut and a trunk. And I say the nut is in the trunk and our minds run to an elephant's trunk. But if I don't give you more of a context, it could be a tree trunk, it could be the trunk of a car, the trunk of a tree, many different things. And so you have to have context to have meaning. Wisdom is a word that has lots of fields of meaning. It's used in lots of ways. It's not just one singular definition. So I want to help you and just give you four ways the Scripture uses it. Wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and some of the Psalms are classified as wisdom literature. What is wisdom literature? It's these phrases, these spins, these poems, these riddles, these sayings that are enigmatic. So we'll learn a concept, a wit of wisdom that'll be easily retained and universally applied. Let me give you four ways the word is used. The first is technical skill, a technical skill as in war or in craftsmanship. You might remember the story when Solomon uh, brings Hiram from Tyre to be a metal worker and because of his wisdom. First Kings seven fourteen, he was a worker in bronze and filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. A related word to the technical skill is industrious. 
This man was a, uh, a, a great craftsman working with metal, and he had industry behind him. Some of the ancients have talked about what uh, Hiram did for the temple complex, that he was able to make gold fabric, that he could cover things in bronze that had never been covered before, that he could overlay gold on acacia wood. He had a craftsmanship with metal that no one had in Israel, and they had to bring a man from Tyre to do this. In fact, literature that studies this type of thing and jewelry and arts and lost wax casting, uh, this man was unparalleled in his day. He had skill and wisdom and knowledge to make all kinds of things out of metal and precious metal and gold and bronze and other materials that he used, and no one else could do that. He had a technical skill. You may use a software or uh, a hardware device, and you have a pretty good knowledge of how it works. But all of us hit a place where we can't figure out what's wrong with it or why something isn't working, and you, like me, probably have a friend whom you call. And they know the next step. When I run my traps and I can't fix it, I call a friend and he will tell me what to do. It's amazing their knowledge. They don't even have to look at a computer screen. Go up to device manager, click right, pull the properties down, and they'll just tell you what to do over the phone. They know exactly how to repair it. A few weeks ago, we were in the green room here and they were talking about Pro Tools. All the musicians and engineers use Pro Tools. And they said, well, when I get to trouble, I, and they all had the same guy and they were laughing about, he knows more about Pro Tools than Pro Tools knows. He knows everything about Pro Tools. He had technical skill. You don't get that automatically. It takes a lot of industry. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of study to get there. And that's one kind of wisdom in the Bible. A second kind is in leading or administrating or governing. First, a technical skill, as in war or in industry or in craftsmanship. This is the second one in leading or governing or administrating, making good decisions. In 2 Samuel 20, 2 Samuel 2, verses 20 and following, 16, 20, and 22, there's a great story in there about a wise woman. And uh, Joab is about to come in there and kill this entire people group. And this woman uh, has the head of Sheba cut off and tosses Sheba's head over the wall to stop a war, to stop the slaughter, the wholesale slaughter of a people group. And the scripture refers to her as a wise woman. In 1 Kings 3, uh, we have the great story of the two harlots who each had a baby boy, and as they slept in the night, one suffocated her son. And she swapped the dead baby for the live baby. In the morning, they wake up, and the mother knows it's not her child, and they have a dispute, and it goes all the way to the king. And it's one of those classic stories, even, even in the Middle East today. It's one of these incredible stories that has legs that go on forever. And Solomon listens to their argument, and he Hebrew, if I remember correctly, it's just two words. Bring sword. And then he tells someone to cut the child in two and give half, one to each mother. And of course, the mother whose child was alive says, no, no, no. And then Solomon knows that's the real mom and gives the child to her. And it goes throughout Israel. In verse 28, they feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Wouldn't it be great if all of our leaders had that kind of godly wisdom in all the decisions they make? First, a technical skill. 
uh, knowing something. It involves industry and learning, a craft, a trade, knowledge. Secondly, a leadership skill, an administrative skill, a governing skill. Third, wisdom keeps from sin. Wisdom keeps a person from sin. And again, throughout the Proverbs, uh, the fool is going to be pitted against the wise, and you will find the naive and the simple are the two who can learn. We think of naivete much like the Old Testament did. Just don't know. We're new to it. A simple person also is similar to that. They just don't know. They're a little simple in their view of life. It does not mean intellectual capacity. It means where they are in the acquisition of knowledge and of wisdom and understanding. But the fool is one who's put in contrast to the wise. A fool is going to ignore wisdom. And so if you have wisdom, it keeps you from sin. Fourthly, it's ethical. A little hard to understand for all of us, but the idea is that God is the possessor, both the originator of and the one who has all wisdom. And so we look at God as ethically having wisdom, and perhaps the easiest way for me to understand that is to think about creation. From Colossians 1 and the Genesis 1 and 2 account, we know that God created everything. Christ is the one who is at work in creation, and he puts the laws of physics in motion. He puts the laws of biology and science and chemistry in place. And he begins life with a word. He speaks and things come into being. And he designs this. And so when engineers look at design and they scratch their heads, they look deeper and deeper with microscopes and further and further with telescopes and deeper and deeper with technology and imaging. And they are amazed at the design behind that, which I think screams out there as a designer. And there's wisdom behind how these systems work. And this ethical wisdom that God possesses and makes available to his followers. Well, how do we get wisdom? How does a person acquire it? What do you do to get it? Turn over to chapter 8 for just a moment. Derek Kidner, uh, now with the Lord, has written extraordinarily about wisdom literature, unlike anyone I know. In fact, the brevity of his literature is evidence of how brilliant he is and and synthetic the way he thinks. But he has a little single volume on Proverbs. If you want to study the book of Proverbs, I'd highly commend it. But it's a book you have to to read slowly because he says so much in every single paragraph. It is astonishing. Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, Derek Kidner. He calls chapter 8 the clarion, or he believes it's the most important chapter in the book because wisdom calls. Now, wisdom is seen as a woman in the book of Proverbs. It's a device she, she calls, she invites, she welcomes, which is contrasted to she, the way of the sinner, the wicked, the harlot, the woman, the adulteress. And so they're juxtaposed. You can follow one woman or the other is the way it would be explained in literature. It's a wonderful device. In chapter 8, does not wisdom call? And understanding lift up her voice. On top of the heights beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates and the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence. O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. On it goes, and you can almost envision a town crier at the front of the book yelling, Wisdom is here, come and get it. And she's at every place at light. She's at the heights, at the gates, 
where the paths meet, where the paths cross. She's everywhere, meaning she's available for anyone and everyone to get that wisdom. Wisdom is available to all, not just those who get an education, not just those who go to school. Wisdom is available to anyone who wants it. How do you get wisdom? Well, you have to seek after it. Wisdom is obtained by a process, as we see in each of the ways the words are used. For one, the technical skill. You don't just get that by osmosis. You have to learn it. And it takes industry to acquire a craftsmanship or a skill or an art. You have to work at it. Yes, you may be, quote, gifted at a baseline, but if you're going to be a painter that makes his or her living, a musician who makes his or her living, someone who's better than anyone else, you've got to apply lots of industry and practice and acquire that skill which becomes wisdom. Now, to define wisdom is a, a hazard at best, but I have over the years tried to write a definition. It's not the best, but it'll get you started, and I hope you'll write your own one day. But I believe wisdom is understanding and application of knowledge. It's the understanding and application of knowledge. Knowledge is this corpus of data, let's say. It, there's information here. There's knowledge here. But wisdom is able to take that knowledge and apply it and do something with it. A person who just sits behind a desk and has a beard and a pipe and glasses might not be, they may be wise, but they're not applying wisdom necessarily. The one who applies that knowledge, not just a smart person, but a person who can take that knowledge and apply it is wise according to the scripture. We've all had uh, stereotypical brilliant professors. Uh, men or women who are stellar in their field. They know more than anyone else in their field. I had such a one in graduate school. He was truly brilliant. And he was uh, going on a trip to speak at a conference. He was stereotypical, and he was sort of the absent-minded professor at the same time. So he goes from Dallas to Houston to speak at this conference. He flies home from Houston back to Dallas days before cell phones. He's at the airport and he's waiting for his wife for a long time. Finally goes to the payphone and calls his wife and says, Honey, where are you? I'm at the airport. I've been here for an hour waiting for you. She says, Honey, you drove the car to Houston. <laughs> so... The most brilliant professor has to fly back to Houston to get his car to drive home to Dallas. We've all known people like that. They're brilliant, but they couldn't change their tire if their life depended on it. They couldn't wind their watch without an instruction book. And we also have the other side, the one who has the knowledge, but not necessarily the brilliance the way we look at it. They have the skill set. When I was a mechanic... There was a man in one of the shops that I learned, that I worked in. His name was Rayburn. They called him Nub because Ford Motor Company had worked him to a nub. He was there before anyone, and he went home after everyone. He drove the big record trucks. He knew more about mechanics than anyone I ever met in my life, but he couldn't teach anyone a thing. And if you had a problem where you couldn't fix something or diagnose it, you could go ask Nub, but Nub couldn't tell you how to do it. He could do it for you which he didn't like to do, but he sure couldn't entrust it to you. Take both those people, the one who has the knowledge and the one who has the skill, and put them together and you have wisdom. That's what wisdom is. It doesn't mean you have to be a brilliant professor and know a trade perfectly. It's just illustrating you have to have the knowledge and the shoe leather to apply it if you're wise. So we're not just looking at 
technology or industry or working with our hands, how do we live the Christian life? We need the knowledge of God's Word, and we need to know how to apply it in life. And if you have that knowledge and apply it, you then are a wise man, a wise woman in the way you get a hold of wisdom and use it. It's the ability to understand and apply knowledge. Well, the Proverbs give us a great set of contrasts, and the contrast further help us understand who's wise and who's not. And the fool is the other side of the, of the mirror, if you will. The fool is used as one who's unwilling to receive instruction. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. How many times have you listened to someone and gone, all they're doing is revealing their own mind, and they really don't have that much to waste? But they're giving me all their opinions about what they think, one of the challenges of our culture is we've worshipped truth as you perceive it, which is a nonsensical idea, but nevertheless, it's what's true for you. That's a bunch of baloney. What's what's true for you? What, what do you need? You'll actualize your own life. We become our own little gods, how we perceive life, and we want to do it our way. Now, certainly there's understanding, you have motivations and interests, but we, no one knows everything. And the fool is the one who won't listen to counsel. 23.9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Again, illustrating what wisdom is like versus the fool. The fool is the one who won't receive the instruction, who won't apply the knowledge. He cannot imagine he's ever mistaken or wrong. 12.15, the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. And perhaps the most poignant of them, and one that most of you may know, in 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. One rebuke to a person who is welcoming information versus a hundred blows over the head, metaphorically. You, you waste 99 of them. They didn't, they didn't hit the, hear the first blow, they're not going to feel the 99 to follow. Cindy and I were married about seven months. We were still living in Nacogdoches, and we were at a dinner party someone had invited us to. And um, I don't remember the precise context, but I remember saying these words, kind of joking, you know, well, if it doesn't work out, we could always divorce. And the host of that dinner uh, pulled me aside, said, Michael, can I talk to you? And he took me back into his bedroom, and he closed the door and got in my face, invaded my personal space, and said, don't you ever tease or joke about divorce. I, I mean, he, he got to me. I said, well, no, don't you ever, ever joke about this. You know, I needed to hear that. As a 23-year-old, newly wedded boy, I needed to hear that. And that one rebuke never left me. I can tell you the story today, 33 years later. Don't joke about that stuff. You can wail on a fool. You can tell them all the good words you want. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your words. You're wasting your energy. Because a fool won't listen. A fool knows everything. A fool can't embrace knowledge and understanding from other people because they think they know it all. Verse 7 of chapter 1, a fool despises wisdom and instruction. You can't tell me anything. Have, haven't we said that? Or maybe it's been said of us. You can't tell that person anything. You're wasting good air. 
Last night, a young man came up after the service and said, I've got a friend and, you know, how do I get through to him? And he went on to tell me all these things. And I said, let's just stop for a minute. Maybe you're not supposed to get through to him. Why don't you just walk away from him for a while? If you're not getting through to him, you're not going to argue him into the kingdom of God. You're not going to convince him by reading a few more books that you're right and he's wrong. Oh, thank you for arguing me to believe in Jesus. Thank you so much. Sometimes you waste in your words. 99 blows after the one don't matter. But a person who's open, who's naive in a good sense, who's simple in a good sense, that means we are able to learn. It's not, it's not capacity or intelligence. It's willingness. You don't have to be smart or smarter than somebody else to gain wisdom. That's the beauty of wisdom. You can be a, a poor, wise man and be better off than a rich fool who has power. Well, the lesson, the so what is, you and I must be ongoing students of wisdom. Your education may end at high school or college or grad school or postgraduate school or seminar, but you never stop being educated in the Word of God, and wisdom is that fabric that takes the knowledge and helps you understand it so you can apply it in such a way that it applies to our life said it many times before, there are three sources of God's wisdom, God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. We have the mind of God in print. All that you need to know about a life of faith and following after Him in obedience, He gave you His mind in print. It takes some industry, it takes some technical skill to study it. The Proverbs, there are 31 chapters, and many of you have probably done this. Read one chapter a day, every day, and you'll read through the book 12 times in a year. If you read it slowly and carefully, you can read one chapter in about four minutes. Slowly and carefully. If you read quickly, you can probably read it in under a minute, two minutes. And just take one proverb with you that day that jumps off the page. That's the one I need to meditate on. Put it on your, your technology, your device, your iPhone, your Droid, whatever it is. Keep it in front of you. Read one chapter. I did this for years. I'd read one chapter of Proverbs before I would start doing my Bible study and devotions. And just sort of it was a calibration of wisdom. Wisdom is available for you. God's Word. God's Spirit who indwells. If you've trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, His Spirit indwells you. And He teaches us. He helps us. He helps us put value to that which we don't always understand. He helps us appraise things spiritually that before we could not appraise. So we take the principle from the Word, but we need God's Spirit to help us, we might say, unpack it, understand it, apply it. And then we need God's people. We need people around us who will give us that rebuke once in a while. I, I really, I'm sorry, but I really hate the cliche, doing life. I just hate that cliche. It just sort of, I feel like I need to take a shower to say it, doing life. I don't know why, it just gives me the creeps. Doing life. Doing eating. I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. But it's community. Walking with people who are walking in the same direction, all of us limping at some time. No one's perfect. No one's got it figured out. It's one thing I beat into our young couples in our marriage mentor group, and they beat it into me as well, watching them over the two years we have them, is that you got to do this with somebody. You won't do it by yourself. There's no Lone Ranger Christian. You need other people to sharpen you and encourage you. 
And that's what makes it work. God's word is the foundation and the truth, the non-negotiable. God's spirit is the empowering ability. As Lloyd and Bill always, always say, we don't do this in the flesh. You can't make the flesh better. It's God's spirit working in us. And then God's people to round off the edges. And if you stay close to God's word, God's spirit, and God's people, you will do well. And you'll gain wisdom along the way. Wisdom is, in a sense, the fabric of much of what we do when we read the Bible is we take knowledge, information. How do we apply it? That's wisdom. For many years, I would put together a set of personal developmental goals. I started these in the early 80s, and I would trade them with two or three men. And they were always grossly overambitious, read 50 books or something like that, memorize a book of the Bible, things like that, most of which I didn't attain to. But I set the goals nevertheless. And I would trade them with two or three men whom I trusted, and they would give their goals to me. One in particular was an attorney friend of mine, and he would at random call me and say, how are you doing on goal number six? And uh, we'd have a good conversation. End of the year, we would grade ourselves with a percentage of how well we thought we did and give myself a zero here and a 16% here and an 80% here. And over the years, we would go back and forth. And one day, that same attorney called me. This was probably in the late 80s. And he said, Michael, your goals are great. You're a disciplined guy. You're smart. You're self-motivated, blah, blah, blah. But I have a question for you. Every goal on your sheet is something that is just doing it. It's just discipline and determination and, uh, and, and getting up in the morning and getting it done. He said, why don't you set a goal that if it was accomplished, all credit would go to God. And it completely transformed my thinking about goals. And I began then to write goals that would only be achieved not by self-discipline, not by determination, but that if these things happened, they were God's work in me, through me, in spite of me. For example, I was lived for years with a knot in my stomach. When I woke up in the middle of the night, a knot would get me going. My mind would race the moment I woke up, and I could never go back to sleep. And it's always been that way. My mind just runs a thousand miles an hour. It never stops. And I'm in meetings that bore me to no end. And I'm all doing all these things. I'm a, I could be doing all these other things. My mind never stops. And I started praying for a non-anxious presence. I even wrote a prayer about a non-anxious... God, give me a non-anxious presence. I'll never forget one line in the prayer. And if this prayer is answered, only you and I will know it, but it will make all the difference in my world. Pray to be the kind of husband I need to be, not by checking the box that I tell her I love her, take her on a date, buy her a little gift when don't have to, write her a note, do all the little checkbox things. I can do that. I'm a checkbox. I'm a disciplined kind of guy. Does that demonstrate and truthfully show that I love her? So over the years, in probably 2004 or 5, I settled. It took a lot of years. But I settled, and they've never changed since. And these are all goals that only God can accomplish in my life. And the summation of them is to be who Christ wants me to be, where Christ wants me to be. And I would add, as long as Christ wants me to be. To be who Christ wants me to be, where He wants me to be, as long as He wants me to be. Because it's not about doing, it's about being. Wisdom takes the knowledge and understands it in such a way that it can apply it. That's wisdom. So all of us need ongoing education for the rest of your life. How do you get wisdom? 
You have to recognize it's from God. You have to want it. You have to apply, apply some industry to it. It's not going to come by osmosis. And maybe you ought to sketch out some goals, some simple ones, where you need God's wisdom. You will need it when you go to school, when you date and court and decide to marry, if you go through a divorce, if you have children and how many children you're going to have, how to raise these children. You're going to need lots of wisdom how to raise children. How to deal with each other when the kids are gone and now it's just the two of us. When injustice happens to you, when you find out you have cancer, when you find out you need surgery, when you find out your spouse is dying, when you find out your child has taken such a hard left turn and broken your heart, when you find out fill in the blank. We need God's wisdom every single day. Not just for the big stuff. Every day. He'll give it to you. You have to want it. If you want it, you have to read it. If you read it, you have to apply it. And God's Spirit will help you along the way. It's really not that hard, because even the simple and the naive can obtain wisdom. I'm glad for that, aren't you? I don't have to be as smart as my professor who forgot he drove. <laughs> I just got to be a guy who push wrenches and can learn. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we think this summer about a broad topic of what wisdom is and how we gain it, apply it, what it means, that it would move from not just intellect and acquiring information, but into our hearts and to our hands. That we'd integrate what it means to know you, to know your word, to know your spirit, and to look around at the people in our midst, in our community, in our friendships and associations, and to sharpen us to be a little more like Christ and a little less like our sinful selves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.